Good morning. By way of introduction, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians 13, 1 through 5. This is not our text for this morning. We will be in in 1 John, 2nd chapter of 1 John, but when we study scripture, when we study the text, we need to come with questions and asking ourselves why. Why did John write this passage? Why do we have 1 John 2? And what is Paul seeking to give to the church in what he's writing? And So we're going to 2 Corinthians 13 to be able to, I think I might have said 1 Corinthians, pardon me, 2 Corinthians 13 in order to help gain some perspective on what Paul is saying, what John is saying in 1 John 2. 2 Corinthians 13, I'm going to read the first five verses here. Follow along with me as I read. I'm reading from the NASB. This is the third time I am coming to you. Okay, this is the second letter to the Corinthians, but Paul's coming for the third time. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now in absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone, since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Verse 5 being the key text here to take us into 1 John. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, exclamation mark, or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? Paul had been to the Corinthian church twice. This was his third time, second letter. And yet the news, if you look at verse 2 again there of 2 Corinthians 13, and yet the news of obstinate, unrepentant sinners was still reaching his ears. And so Paul is saying, when I come for the third time, I'm not going to spare anyone. Verse 2, what is he not going to spare them of? He's not going to spare them of rebuke. He's not going to to spare them of an examination, of a test. And so he calls the Corinthian church to test themselves. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Now go with me to 1 John 2. This is essentially what John is doing here in the text this morning. And he's answering the questions of how might we know that we are Christ? How can we be sure of our salvation? What should I look for in my life? What should I look for in your life? What should we look for in one another's life to be an assurance of salvation? What, what test can we apply? How can we be sure that I'm in the faith? And for John and Paul as pastors, their, their writing here is because of their care for the souls of those to whom they are writing, about whether or not their profession of faith is matching their walk of faith. 1 John 2, 3 through 11 answers these questions this morning. And in a way, applies a test to our souls. And we 
by God's grace, should go to that test with sobriety and yet eagerness. Look with me at 1 John 2. Max read the scripture. I'd like to read it again. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Throughout 1 John, we see many tests of the faith, of your salvation, if it's true or not. We're looking at really the first two questions on the test this morning. And the first question put in a statement on the test would be found in uh, verses 3 through 6. Specifically, 3, 5, and 6 with the antithesis, with the opposite being in verse 4. And then the second question is found in verses 7 through 11. And that's how we will look at them this morning. So starting in verse 3, 5, and 6, the first question on the test for your soul this morning from the scripture is, true or false, the true Christian must obey God. The true Christian must obey God. Now let me clarify that John is speaking to the normal, quote-unquote, Christian life, in that he's not speaking to a person uh, that would be say, saved at the very end of their life. They're on their deathbed. The thief at the cross, as it were. And they call out to God and they are saved. But there's not time in their life to keep the commandments. This is not who John's writing to. John is writing to you and I. Those who are living out our lives in the church. Living our lives in faith. And what I mean by this saying, the true Christian must obey God, I mean must in the sense that Christians obey God out of a loving desire and in accordance with his or her new nature. They must do it because it's what they do. 1 Corinthians 2, 11 through 16. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man, or we could say, but a man, a a fleshly man, but a man that has not had his eyes opened by the Holy Spirit through the word of God in salvation, a man dead in his trespasses and sin, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually apprised. But he who is spiritually appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ." 
The new man wants to do and does new man things. The new man, the new nature, recognizes that there is one true God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I am, the author, perfecter of their faith, the sovereign one, the righteous judge, the Alpha and the Omega, and in so recognizing that truth, they, they respond in obedience. But, but look at verse 3 with me. By this, by what? Well, the, the test of whether or not you are, your, your salvation is true, you're not just a professor, but you're a professor of faith, is that we keep his commandments. Now, what John is not saying is that this is faith uh, by works, salvation by works alone. But rather what he's saying is the test or the, the, the fruit will be, the evidence will be that those who know him keep his commandments. And what he's saying, if you go back to the first uh, two verses of First John, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What he's not saying is that you're going to be doing this by yourselves or in your own ability. But in actuality, the only way you can do this is through the work of Christ in you. We cannot do this. And so any fruit that comes up is from Christ. We cannot just conjure up the ability to obey the commands of Christ. But yet, because of Christ in us, the fruit of Christ in us is the obedience to him. The natural outflow and desire of mine as a Christian is going to be to want to obey Christ. You know, Paul... uh, Paul Renfro, not the Apostle Paul, talked about last week, Ephesians 2, dead in your trespasses and sins. And oftentimes I think we think of a Christian who they come, they're, they're, dead in their, they're dead in their trespasses and sins, then Christ comes, makes them alive, they come to Christ. And, and yet there's this, there's this sense that they're laying on the gurney still, they're now breathing, but oxygen is needed and there's still a potential that they might they might slip back in, into their deadness. And when I was thinking about this, the first thing that came to my mind was the children's song. I mean, you have lots of children in your home, you think of children's songs a lot. And this one came up. Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. He asked for an alm and stuck out his palm. And this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold I have none, but such as I have give by thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. What did he do? He went, come on, he went, come on, come on, come on. He went walking, thank you. He went walking and leaping, thank you. He went walking and leaping and praising God. It wasn't just that he he drug himself up. He went walking, there was a drastic change. I was reading in the scriptures this morning and devotion, Psalm 29, 9 talks about the voice, the power of God's word. It says, the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth, strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry, glory! Well, that temple is now us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so our entire being, once come to Christ, is not just sort of changed from deadness and you're half alive. No, you're all alive, the the Spirit has come and through the Word of God, the Holy Spirit says, be alive and you've gone from dead to alive and there is a massive reaction that happens there. And you're going from having 
nothing to do with Christ and being an enemy of him and dead to completely alive and and now even loving Christ. This is, it's, it's a loving relationship. He loved us first, so we then love him and our entire being desires to then respond in obedience to him. Look with me at verse five. But whoever keeps his word, in verse four, we'll get to in a minute, there was the antithesis, but in verse five, but whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. What does this mean? The love of God has truly been perfected. Is the love of God lacking unless we love him? No, no. We had the Spurgeon quote up there on screen before the service. The love of Christ in its sweetness, its fullness, its greatness, its faithfulness passes all human comprehension. Where can we find the words to describe his matchless, his unparalleled love toward the children of men? It is so vast and boundless that as the swallow simply skims the water without diving into its depths, so all descriptive words merely touch the surface while immeasurable depths lie below. Well might the poet say, O love, thou fathomless abyss, unquote Charles Spurgeon. The love of God is not lacking in anything. The word perfect here is basically meaning whole or full or complete. And what it's, it's not referring to God's love here lacking, it's referring to our love here lacking. Both sides, two sides of the same coin. That we are to obey Christ and when we obey Christ, we experience the fullness of his love for us. Think of a, a father with a son or a child and there is sin that comes between the two of them. Say the, the child disobeys. Is the father's love for that child lacking? Not in the least. But is there broken fellowship? Yes. So when the child comes in 1 John 1, 9, confesses his sin. There is restoration of a relationship. Is the father's love anymore? No. But the child experiences it in its fullness now because there's a restoration of a relationship. And that's what's going on here in 1 John 5. Is that we, in obedience, in loving obedience to him, as a sign of our faith, we experience, we taste the fullness and perfect and complete love of God for us. Then we have in verse 6, the same test put differently. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. This is not simply a command that we do out of duty and we do it from 9 to 5 and then we clock out and go home and do what we want to do or we come to church, clock in, then clock out, go Monday through Saturday and do what we like. This is a lifestyle. It's, it's not a choice to do out of compulsion. It's, it's, it's what you do because of what Christ has done in you. The one who is a believer in Christ imitates Christ. Now in verse four, we have the, the opposite side We have the antithesis, which helps better understand this point. Look with me at verse 4, 1 John 2. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar 
and the truth is not in him. We know from Matthew seven sixteen through 20, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Matthew 3, 8, bear fruits, keeping and repentance. Galatians 5, but the fruit of the spirit. The one who says, that's what verse 4 says, the one who says, simply meaning that there's a lot of talk going on. They say the right things, but there is no walk. They are a professor of the faith, but they are not a possessor of it. And I think in today's culture, it's such a technological culture that can be a strong distraction from the faith, and yet it can be one of the best litmus test for one's faith. Because there's a subtle, it's not subtle, but it it happens, that we tend to think that what we do online or through social media or the internet is a virtual self and is different from who I am in the flesh, real life. So you can, you, you go online, and I see this all the time. I see people that I know or have known in the past who have professed faith in Christ, and with you're with them, you're encouraged, you're strengthened, and then you see the language they use, the pictures they post, the jokes that they find funny, and you think, now that doesn't match up. I don't... I don't get it. Or you, they, something big happened in the news a couple weeks ago. A gentleman posted something about his daughter and a whole bunch of other guys got on and just trashed his daughter in a very inappropriate way. And these men were found out. You know what they said? I didn't, I'm not a bad person. I don't, I'm done. I didn't mean that in that way. I, I just said that and, and I'm really a good guy. And you go, Really? You know, really your virtual persona is probably much more the real you than your in-the-flesh persona. And yet, we so often think, and young people hear me on this, if you think you can post something or say something or do something on the internet and somehow think that that is not going to be seen and heard by Jesus Christ and, and Account you will be held accountable for that, or that it somehow can be done and is different than what you do in this church with people of God. You are in sin and you're wrong, and you cannot go that route. You are deceiving yourself. This is what Paul. This is what John is driving at. You must walk the faith and not just talk the faith. And you can quote things all you like, but unless you're doing it when no one's watching. Take care of your soul. Examine yourself. This is what John and Paul are exhorting us to do. You call yourself a Christian, but your language, your Twitter post, your Facebook, and we don't have to just certainly put this to an online category. We can certainly put this to when you're around somewhere, you take a trip, no one's watching you. But for the culture today, 
that which happens on light and yet you're, doesn't match your, the life you're living before your Christian peers and before that you're living here in this church on Sunday morning, if that doesn't jive, examine yourself. Examine myself. The heart of a believer desires and pursues the things of Christ outside and beyond his words. The true Christian must obey God out of loving desire in accordance with his or her new nature. Do you understand? I want you to hear clearly. Do you understand what I mean by the word must? It's not something they must do out of compulsion. It's they must do because that's what they, their nature does that. Just like I must eat food in order to survive. Whether I want to or not, I have to do it. That's what a Christian does. They, they, it's just their nature. They desire to do this. They cannot not do this. That would be the first question on the test, true or false. The second question or a statement, true or false, would be found in 7 through 11. The true Christian must love others. Again, understanding this word must It's in accordance with their new nature. I think it's interesting though, this verse 7 and 8, because we get an interesting phrase. I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but rather it's an old one, but in a sense it's new. And what is being talked about here? Well, the the commandment being talked about here is the commandment of love. That is the old commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We got that all the way back in Deuteronomy. That's not a new commandment. But in a sense, it is new. Because when Christ came, the, the old commandment, love the Lord, got deepened. It, it, it took on a whole new brevity. It took on a whole, excuse me, whole, took on a whole new depth to it. And that is the sense that now not only do you love God, but now you should love him to the extent that it overflows to others and you love others. And not just those that are yours, such as the Hebrew people, they loved those around them, but now you even have to love your enemy. That's the, what, what, what John is saying here. There's, it's not just a, it's a, not a new thing, it's an old thing, but it is new in the sense that it's, it's much, much deeper. Then verse 9, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness till now. Look with me at First John, just back over a little bit, First John 1 5 verse 5 of 1 John 1 here's the context for this verse 9 the one who says he's in the light verse 5 this is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all you see, you see what verse 9 is saying here is that the person who says they are in the light if you say you are a Christian and you are walking in the light and yet God is light and when you by his enlightening you come to the understanding of the faith you cannot do things that are in opposition to what he has shown you that is in the light. I say that I'm in the light. Yes, I say all the right things and yet his who he is, the understanding and knowledge of who God is doesn't require you to bow the knee in obedience to him and then love others. It doesn't, that's one side's the dark and the other side's the light. If we're in the light, 
then there's going to be a humble and joyful and loving obedience to the king that overflows to others. Notice in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's, that's the first fruit. That's the first fruit that others are going to see is love for others. Verse 10, the one who loves his brother, verse John 2, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Well, this is in reference to a stumbling block. When, uh, when I was at Alert 13 years ago, wow, we had this game and I hated it, but it was called Bulldozer. And what you did is you have a room about the size, which was the gym, and they had a line down the middle and they shut off all the lights. And then they would walk around flashing lights in your eyes so your eyes could never adjust. And it was pitch black outside as well. So you really could, you could not see the hand in front of your face. And that was the object. The nasty part of the bat of the game is that the goal was to get as many volleyballs that were on that side onto your side and as many people on that side as onto your side. So basically it was the blind wrestling the blind. And you never knew if it was, if you were wrestling your teammate or the opposition. So you had to come up with little code words, but then the other team would break the code words. And so then you never knew. And then they flipped the lights on. And when you came into the light, it was both exhilarating and frustrating. Now, what, the interesting part of it is, is that's exactly what John is talking about here. You're stumbling around the darkness. You don't know if you're tripping over somebody or somebody else is tripping over you. You really have no clue what's going on. Your eyes, are, this is the interesting part here, your eyes are open. They want, they think, I, I can, my eyes are open. Of course, I can do what I want to do. No, it doesn't matter. Look, look at it. Look at verse 10. Their eyes are open, verse 11, but the darkness has blinded their eyes. It's not as if someone took and taped their eyes closed that they could not see or put on a blindfold. It, the darkness blinded their eyes. They create a, that's the person who's in the darkness. They naturally create a stumbling block for one another. They may not intend to or desire to, but they, they have the inability to do it. They just walk around stumbling into one another and having other people stumble over them. And yet when Christ comes and the light does flip on, everything becomes clear. Oh, there's my brother over here. I want to love him in such a way as to not create a stumbling block. Oh, there is my enemy over there. I want to love him in such a way as to show him Christ. Verse 11, But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Well, what about backsliding? That's the first question I would ask. Is what, about, what about when I'm struggling with my sin? Here you're saying that this is going to be then the, the, your, your new nature is to obey Christ and love others and yet I'm struggling with that. I, I just wrestle and there's days I just don't want to do that. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to say the right thing. What about that? What about backsliding? When a true Christian does not obey God and love others in the sense that he is not doing what he knows is right. He's in sin. 
and done so for a prolonged period of time or even a short period of time, we know what we're supposed to do. We, we go to 1 John 1, 9. We confess our sin and regain a right relationship with God. But when we don't do that, it's called backsliding. Then the question would be is, well, how long can you backslide and still be termed as a Christian? And that's where I would tell you the importance of being in a church if you are a Christian. Because that's in many ways why we have pastors and elders and deacons is that they're called by God to love you enough to call out when your fruit is looking bad and help examine you. That's why we have Matthew 18 and Luke 17 and 1 Corinthians 5, what we term as church discipline. Scriptures on church discipline where we would go and say, friend, brother, sister, you say you're in the light and yet you, the fruit is not matching this. Repent. Follow Christ. Take up your yoke. Continue forward. And Bob has said the phrase many times, when your faith fizzles at the finish, it was faulty at the first. So can you backslide all the way out? It's a question. How long can you backslide? That's not really the question we should be asking, should it is. It's really more of how fast, as a believer, we should be asking the question of how fast can I repent? How fast can I turn back to Christ? How fast can I reunite myself in that relationship with Him? In terms of application this morning, I have two points. First application point would be to examine ourselves. Examine ourselves. Are we imitating Christ? In verse 6, you saw that. The one who says he abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Are we imitating Christ as our model for what Christianity should look like? I have the joy of going on a weekly basis to art class. And my art skills are to such an extent that I take art with a bunch of six and seven year old little boys. And we do this thing at times in warm-up called, uh, well we call them warm-ups, but you, you take a model And a model would be a little design made of dots, made of circles or straight lines or curved lines or angled lines. And you're supposed to copy that just to work on the fundamentals of drawing. And so you'll copy it three or four or five times. Well, the tendency by all of us in the class, including myself, is to copy the first one. And then when we copy it the next time, we don't copy what we should be copying, the original artwork, we copy our copy of it. And so by the time you get to the third or fourth time you've done it, any mistake that you made on the first copy is completely magnified. Do you see what I'm saying? And this is the way it is oftentimes with the Christian life. I look over here and go, I really like the way that guy's living for Jesus. I think I'm going to try to live like he lives. And he's over there going, no, I think I'm going to try to live like that person and I'm going to try to live like that person. I'm going to... You see the line? goes on down. When we're missing the point, we're all to look at Christ and go, this is how he walked and this is how I should walk rather than looking at one another to determine what our walk should look like. And we, we walk as he walked 
by taking up our cross and following him daily. We look at the Great Commission, and what is the Great Commission? Well, we oftentimes say it's to go into all the world and make disciples. And, but we miss, that's not the Great Commission. The entirety of the Great Commission is go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them that they might obey Christ. Are we obeying the commands of Christ? We oftentimes, uh, like Matthew 11, come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and then I will give you rest. And you might be sitting here today going, I'm tired. Uh, I'm worn out at this following Christ deal. I want to, but I don't have any more to go, any more to give. And so, yes, I want to come to Jesus and rest. But we don't read the second verse there. Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give rest unto your souls. The next verse, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Christ's yoke is easy and his burden is light. Why? Because when you're strapped into the yoke of sin, and you're pulling nastiness, dung and manure and all the filth of sin, you have no choice. You have no ability but to pull that cart heavier and heavier and it drives you. And there's no loving person, loving individual helping you and giving you strength. And yet when you strap in to the call of Christ, though it is very tiresome at times, Christ is not using a whip to drive you. No, he's using love to, to move you forward. And he's, he's not sitting on the cart driving you with a whip. He's out in front leading, pulling, helping, strengthening you. He's, he's there beside you. He allows you the strength to run when you are weary and to walk when you are faint. 1 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. So if you are weary of imitating Christ, then I would just exhort you to go again to the scriptures and be, have your soul lifted in exaltation to what he has done for you. And the fact that you, you need not do anything for your salvation now and he gives you all the grace to, to, to move forward. And I, I love um, the other couple weekends ago when we had the, the shower there on Sunday afternoon for, for Max and Bree and Susan Messias gave a little exhortation about using our simple, feeble efforts and she, she used the scriptures of the woman at uh, the marriage at Cana where they ran out of wine and the mother of Christ sent water had them fill up jars and say go take this to Christ and he'll, he'll do something amazing with it and there's a sense as we imitate Christ when you know all you have is a feeble effort it's, it's, even your best efforts are feeble but you take it to him and he, he does something amazing to it and he uses it for his glory revive us again fill your heart 
Fill our hearts with your love. May our souls be rekindled. So if there's just an ember of, God, I want to do this, but I have no strength to imitate you seemingly, well, then take it to him. And the Holy Spirit will blow on it, refresh it, and bring you forward. There's the application of examining ourselves. And then the other application would be to examine others. Speak the truth in love. And I'm not advocating that we judge another person's salvation in a way that only God can, but I am advocating strongly that though God looks upon the heart, we look on the outside, and we are told that from the heart flow the issues of life, out of the heart the mouth speaks, and we're told to judge the fruit to be sure that it is good. We, we cannot judge it as in the terms of justification, but we can examine how our sanctification is going. Or to examine ourselves first, but then do the loving thing. Probably one of the most loving things we can do for another person is to say, brother, sister, that is not look like Christ. And question them. And the Lord, the Holy Spirit can use that questioning to be a grace that they would go and examine themselves in the faith as John is exhorting us to do. How do we love another person? We don't create a stumbling block for them. We encourage and strengthen the weaker brother. We practice the one another's. We love one another. We live in harmony with one another. We put one another, another person before ourselves. How do we hate our brother? We're selfish. I don't want to get caught up in their filth. I'd rather not fear rejection that they might not like me, so I, yeah, I see some things in their life that don't look very good, but that is hatred. You're going to let them burn in hell? They may not be burning in hell one day, but they could be backsliding, and you may be used by the Holy Spirit to call them out. How do we hate our brother? We gossip about, did you see that guy, what he posted? What he said to the other day? The language he used? We don't forgive them. We're jealous. We work with them in arrogance. And I think oftentimes we more often see the first of this scripture passage here in 1 John. The first thing being uh, that I, a brother loves God, says uh, he loves God, then he doesn't keep his commandments. And the second, he says he loves God, but he hates his brother. We, we don't see that as much. And the loving thing to do is to confront that. We've, we've got to confront that. We've got to confront that in our own lives. We've got to be humble when somebody comes to us and says, brother, sister, your life is not matching your talk. John thirteen thirty five. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we're to examine ourselves. Are we imitating Christ? How are we doing that? But then also, in love for one another, we're to examine each other, speaking the truth in love. And this requires a lot of humility. This requires a lot of prayer. As Bob said in First Light there, taking this serious matter, putting it in the oven, let it cooking for a while, in prayer, checking on it, really considering it. Not going to someone else and another person, another person saying, hey, what do you think? But rather just praying about it. And then going in love to that person. These are the first two tests. There's many others in First John, and we'll get to those. But if you want to know for sure, are you in the faith? 
These would be the first two tests you have to ask yourselves. Must I obey God? And must I obey, must I love one another? Must I love others as Christ loved them, including to the point of laying down my life, laying down my reputation, laying down my pride, laying down my relationship with them in order to point them to Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we rejoice at the the thought and understanding of the magnificence of the gospel, the magnificence of the work of Christ in us. The love of Christ that constrains us, compels us, controls us. Father, we, in our flesh, would so desire to do what we want to do, to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And yet, for those that are yours, there is a a hitch. There is a, a stopping. There's a check in the spirit. There's a, there's a love for us that calls us to love for you. Father, this is not something that we could conjure up in even our, in our best day. And yet you've given it to us and we want to respond to that grace in love to you and thanking you, Father, thanking you for loving us first because we would have never been able to love you second without that love for us. Father, I pray that uh, you might use this church in our feeblest of efforts to be in continual examination through the word of truth about whether our lives are are reflecting Christ, are imitating Christ, are walking as you walked, that are joyfully submitting to the commands of Christ, not out of need to do so in order that we might be saved, but in, in loving response of seeing that this is the the gift we have now been given in the light of knowing how to walk in a way that pleases you. Seeing those commands as the way in which we might show our love for you. And then I pray, Father, that we might be bold in our faith. Whether it would be an unbeliever, whether it would be a fellow believer, whether it be an old friend or acquaintance that we come along, that in humility and in truth, in love, in sweetness, we would exhort them to Christ, exhort them to live for Christ alone, knowing that life is short, it's but a vapor, the days are passing, and we will one day, all of us, will stand before Christ and bow the knee. And we desire, Father, that you might use us to call those that are yours to yourself. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to do so and may we be diligent to do so. May we be diligent, Father, this week, disciplined to be in your word, to walk out a loving relationship with you. And we do so, Father, only in the matchless and glorious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.